This man died in 2019 at the age 89. He was an Eagle Scout and a Navy officer out of Annapolis. Was he a politician of sorts or on the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Nothing is coming to mind. In 1969, he became a kind of folk hero with a quixotic attempt to fly medicine and food to American prisoners of war in North Vietnam. Hmm. Not John McCain. No, but you're kind of in the right direction. He was probably trying to fly food to John McCain. (laughs) Next question. In 1979, he staged a commando raid that he asserted had freed two of his employees and thousands of criminals and political prisoners from captivity in revolutionary Iran. Ooh, bad guys. I missed that part of history class. I don't know. He was a gadfly who made a fortune in computer services. Michael Dell still alive? He is. Your sense for old people is terrible. (laughs) Give me some more. All right. He had a squeaky nasal country boy twang and ears that stuck out like Alfred E. Newman's on a Mad Magazine cover. Oh, oh my, okay, okay, hold on. It is Ross Perot. (laughs) Today's dead celebrity is Ross Perot. (laughs) Number one, I will not run as either a Democrat or Republican because I will not sell out to anybody but to the American people. And I will sell out to them. They said 53,000 signatures. Just regular folks can't do that. Well, you know, in all fairness to them, you didn't. You did over 200,000. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. My name is Michael Osborne. And my name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life. We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, H. Ross Perot died 2019, age 89. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Ross Perot, the wiry Texas gadfly who made a fortune in computer services, amazed the nation with audacious paramilitary missions to Vietnam and Iran, and ran for president in 1992 and 1996 with populist talk of restoring Norman Rockwell's America, died on Tuesday at his home in Dallas. Ahmed, your thoughts? Gadfly? Gadfly, yeah, I had to actually look at that. What does that mean? I thought this might come up. I copy-pasted the dictionary definition. (laughs) An annoying person, especially one who provokes others into action by criticism. Such as the writer of the obituary? Yeah, well, fucking, I I mean, like, I I think it's an insult. It is. I mean, to follow Wiry with it, clearly, there's some sharp edges there. I mean, this is, like, right after he died. You know, like, to call him a Wiry gadfly— that leapt out to me. There, were, there was an angry New York Times in 2019, I bet. I guess that's right. Certainly, the Times has its political leanings, and there I'm sure we'll get into it. There's a lot of pieces that came out about Perot as being a forerunner to Trump, yeah. you know, as being a sort of populist, unfiltered billionaire. And, you know, some of those think pieces are kind of obvious. But do you think that's why they were 
felt confident calling him a wiry gadfly in his obituary? That would be my suspicion. Yeah. What, uh, al- what else left out? I mean, there's so many just loaded words. Audacious. What about the reference to Norman Rockwell? I mean, I think he was explicit about it. He did have Norman Rockwell paintings. I mean, but he didn't stand behind a podium at a rally and say, I'm going to restore Norman Rockwell's America. I don't think so, but I do think in the press he would talk about how much that imagery spoke to him. So to reference a specific artist, I mean, Norman Rockwell obviously has a a very well-defined sort of cultural presence in terms of what he represented. And so I, I don't think it's inaccurate. But I don't know. There was something about the like explicit reference to him in the obituary that also leapt out to me. But they were also essentially just calling him a lame person by saying that he wanted to restore Norman Rockwell's America in this sort of pre-civil rights, pre-independence, pre-free love world. I mean, to lump in the sort of message of this guy with an artist, I don't know. That That's a kind of, I don't know if it's a ballsy move or a lazy move in the obituary. I think it's a little it's a little bit ballsy. It's very opinionated to do that. You've used the word opinionated several times here. Do you take issue with the opinionated nature of this first line of the obituary? I think I do. I'm not saying that an obituary can be entirely neutral. Neutrality is impossible when just written from a third person perspective. But you've got to try to be neutral. Do you mean critical? I mean opinionated, I think like, are the there, there's such a thing as offering? Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, it's okay to to celebrate somebody, but yeah, to be to sort of like implicitly criticize. I mean, yeah. I, so maybe you're right. I think I am saying critical. Yeah, I think I am saying critical. Does that affect how you would grade this? Is it wrong to have a critical first line of an obituary? Yeah. It yes, feels, it is wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. As I, as I was saying that, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I think it's wrong. So I'm going to give it a low score. I'm going to give it a three. It's not inaccurate, exactly. I mean, the, the word gadfly, annoying person, he does, we'll get to this later, but he's got some, not exactly annoying qualities, but it, there is something, you know, he is an irritant or seems like an irritant, you know, amazed the nation with these audacious paramilitary missions. I mean, that kind of right. The fact that they lump his run for president in 92 and 96 into the same clause kind of bugs me because 92 Ross Perot is so different than 96, the significance of the campaign. But I'm with you. I, th- th- somehow this doesn't quite honor him enough, whether you like it or not. And I do think the hint at criticism really does knock the score of this one down. I agree with your three. Okay. Let's move on. All right. Two threes. Category two. Five things I love about you. In this category, Amit and I work together to try and get at five things that we love about this person, why we're talking about them in the first place. You want to start? Yeah, so his first job, I forget how young he was, but tremendously young, he delivered newspapers on horseback. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was great because it's, I mean, it's it's such a, a, a tremendous story for for somebody to end up a billionaire. But the image I got in my head was his son owned the Dallas Mavericks. Do you remember that? I forgot that. So prior to Mark Cuban, uh, it was Perot Jr. that owned the Mavericks. Is that right? I'll be yeah. I forgot about that. Whose Mavericks don't really like use this as a mascot, but their animal mascot is a horse. Yeah. And so I like ultimately drew that parallel <laughs> yeah. that some 60 or 70 years later after he 
was delivering things on horseback. His son owned a giant basketball franchise who was symbolized by a horse. That's awesome. That's a clear number one. All right, I got a couple here. Do you know who Richard Crenna is? Uh-uh. I think that's how you say his name. C-R-E-N-N-A. I know him from the Rambo movies. So he played Rambo's commander. Have you watched those movies? Not a second recently? time. No. First Blood holds up. First Blood is pretty badass. And as Rambo is running around the woods, hiding from the cops and getting weapons and being resourceful in the wilderness, and, you know, he's he's this Vietnam vet, there's a all kinds of law enforcement called in to try and get him, and then they end up calling his commander from Vietnam. This guy, Richard Crenna, if you heard his voice, you might recognize him. I didn't come here to rescue Rambo from you. I came here to rescue you from him. He played Ross Perot in the made-for-TV movie On Wings of Eagles. This was actually adapted from a Ken Follett novel. Do you know who Ken Follett is? Yeah. Yeah, I wrote Pillars of the Earth. He wrote the true story of this paramilitary adventure to rescue two IBM employees. Uh, No, I'm sorry, not EDS employees. employees, Thank you. From Iran. From revolutionary Iran. And there are some people who dispute the Ross Perot account of this paramilitary adventure, but I'm really happy to learn that Richard Crenna played Ross Perot in this movie. My name is Ross Perot. I'm a businessman here in Dallas, Texas. So that's my number two. Okay, I'll take number three. Are you familiar with Parkinson's law as an economic principle? No. So it's, I remember we learned it. I don't know if I learned it independently or in school, but the theory is basically that the amount of work it takes to do a task expands into the amount of time you give the task. So basically there's a 40 hour work week. And if you have a 20 hour job, you have a 40 hour job. If you have a 60 hour job, you have a 40 hour job because there's a 40 hour work week. Interesting. So Perot had a few instances of not kind of believing in this at all. Just so I understand this, you like expand or shrink your workload to fill into the hours allotted, whatever the job may be. Correct. I see. Parkinson's law. That's interesting. No relationship to Parkinson's disease. Not at all. And I'm sure I didn't even describe the law very correctly, but that's my recollection of it. Okay, that's good. So there's two Perot stories that oppose this law. One is when he was at IBM, he met his entire like sales quota for the year in three weeks. And he's like, well, now what do I do? And then there was a second one after he started EDS, his company that ultimately made him a fortune. One of their first clients, they said it would take two years to complete the install of their computer network. And they did it in something like eight weeks. Totally throwing Parkinson's law out the window. Yeah. So he seemed to, to sort of live by that of challenging those sort of norms and expectations Strictly in, in in the business sense. Let's talk about it just in the business sense. Yeah. But challenging those norms and expectations just with a vengeance. Of what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to pause for a second. You grew up in Dallas. You and I are similar age. 92 is kind of the first presidential election that I had any sort of semi-formed consciousness of. I am curious to know if you growing up in Dallas were aware of Ross Perot prior to 1992. Yeah, absolutely. Really? We would, yeah, we would do elementary school like field trips to EDS had some like future museum. It was like a mini, like one floor Epcot Center. Yeah. That we take field trips in like third grade and it was all funded by EDS and Pro. And I, I also remember this very clearly in third grade for Halloween, it was like you wore a Halloween costume 
to work, and there was a girl. You, you mean school. What did I say? Work. School was work, Michael. <laughs> I guess this is a first-generation thing. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so a girl in my class, I remember she wore like a tie and carried a briefcase, and I asked her who she was, and she said Ross Perot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So he was that big of a figure in the Dallas scene. I mean. Yeah, as much as like Jerry Jones is today or something. I was certainly aware of who he was. Yeah. To get back to the category, five things I love about you, we have not mentioned some of the more obvious things. The rags to riches story is pretty astonishing. It's not like he came from extreme poverty. So he grew up in Texarkana in Depression era. So Depression era Texarkana could not have been doing that well. But it was also... You know, when you sort of read the accounts, it's clear he's not necessarily like in deep poverty, about to starve. He's somewhere middle-ish, whatever that means in Depression-era Texarkana, to becoming the 167th wealthiest man in in 2019 or whatever in America. That rags-to-riches story is pretty great. It's hard to get your head around. This is the question I have for you. Is that something that we should include on the five things I love about you? Because I love a rags-to-riches story. The scale of this one is like no other. If you love a rags to riches story, then yes. Yeah. Everyone loves a rags to riches story. Well, it depends a little bit on the nature of how you would want to achieve those riches. When I say rags to riches, I guess I am sort of invoking, a, you know, kind of dedication to a certain work ethic and a stick to and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, he did leave IBM to start his own company and it didn't go all that well. And then it eventually went really well. And, you know, the rest is history. He accumulates tremendous wealth over the course of a lifetime. So MC Hammer's rags to riches to rags. Doesn't quite resonate as much with you. <laughs> was not expecting you to bring up Hammer. How can you not bring up Hammer in a conversation that's, <laughs> our conversation is essentially about 1992. It's a good point. It's a damn good point. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it actually, it's not necessarily a common story. So I don't know that I'm enamored you, with it. So I actually would not nominate that as something I'd put on my Five things I love about you because I want five things to be I love about you to be really unique to the person. But you know? his was for a work ethic. You said you're enamored by those stories if there's sort of an underlying work ethic behind yeah, it. Yeah, there's a part of me that wants to believe in the American dream. Sure, no matter you know kind of what so bullshit now, surrounds it. I, and hang on, I want to couch this because I do think that that is a, a story that this culture tells that has all kinds of problems to it. That it's not nearly as achievable as we like to think it could be, but. I've talked it out. I don't want to put this on my list. This I don't. Is, I don't understand why. Because the only thing that makes it fundamentally unique as a rags to riches story, the thing that distinguishes it from MC Hammer and countless others, is the scale. Is how much wealth was achieved here. That's nice. It's a decent story. It's not part of the five things I love about Ross Perot. I've got a slightly different one. Bring I, in. Bring in a new number four. I looked this up. First billionaire presidential candidate. Really? Yes. Even if you go back into history and account for the, what do they call the it? The present value of- Present value. Yeah. Uh, th there are some people who come close. John Kennedy comes close. Andrew Jackson actually comes kind of close. I mean, they're in the multi hundreds of millions of dollars. But the first one who crosses the tres comas, you watch Silicon Valley, I, right? I got yeah, the reference. Russ Hanneman, yes. okay. Tres comas. You know what that means in Spanish? Three comas. Nope. Three commas. The first one who crosses the tres comas threshold is Ross Perot. Kind of an unlikely figure. 
to do so. And there's a case to be made that he created a kind of archetype. I mean, we've seen this not, not just with Trump, but there's, you know, Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, and there's another one in there. John Kerry wasn't quite on that category. Romney? No, he was not on that list. Bloomberg blows everybody out of the water in terms of wealthiest. He's at like 54 billion or something like that. But the sort of billionaire presidential candidate, I think Ross Perot kind of creates it. And so what what you love about it was just that, the pioneering aspect of it? I think he just needs to, like, you got to give credit where credit's due. You know, that there is somebody who has crossed that wealth threshold and then says, I want to run the nation. <laughs> it seems like an archetype that we have been thinking about and wrestling with for better or worse ever since. And I'm impressed by that, I suppose. So it, it's more that I'm just impressed in the turn to, you know, I care enough about this that I'm going to try and not necessarily infiltrate, but just like hop into the presidential race. That's that's it's an incredible achievement. Yeah, fair enough. What do you got for five? I've got my five. Do you have a strong five? Otherwise, I can go with my five. I wrote crazed look in the eye. No, let's save that for later. <laughs> there's no, there's no love. I mean, there can be. I guess. I'm, right. I know. I'm not the. I'm not the, it's the judge. Here. I just want to say it's true. You like you love the crazed look? I love his crazed look in the eye. There's okay. just something in the eye that's like, wow, where's he coming from? The one I was going to choose was actually something you you sent me, you shared with me the other day, was the inspiration story about when he was working at IBM and reading Reader's Digest and came across a Nathaniel Hawthorne quote. The quote being, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. And, you know, in the incredibly compacted version of the story, that lit off a light bulb and he said, why the hell am I working for somebody else? I'm going to go start my own company. I like the possibility that that quote was that influential in his life, because I love that quote. I think I've made that quote a screensaver before. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. I love that one. I think that's a great number five. Quiet desperation. That's really evocative. Yeah. Well, shall we go on? Category three. Malkovich Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a portal into John Malkovich's mind where they can have a front row seat to his experiences. Malkovich Malkovich. Malkovich Malkovich Malkovich. Ahmet, what do you like here? I chose sometime, I think it was in 1984, Perot bought a copy of the Magna Carta. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think that's hilarious. Yeah. And it was one of like the only copies to ever leave the United Kingdom or the only copy. So I just want to be behind the eyes and in the soul to see what that power feels like, if it feels like anything. It's a good one. I had two. I'll tell you the one I'm not going to go with. The one I'm not going to go with was when his EDS employees were freed from around. Like that story, that saga is incredible. And the moment that they are home, it's pretty exciting. I really like it when you build the scene of like being in a grocery store somewhere. I don't think Ross Perot shopped for his own groceries, but there must have been a moment at some point when he saw somebody pull out an iPhone and use it. And I want to know if he thought back to the investment he made in Next, which was Steve Jobs' company right after Steve Jobs left Apple the first time. Both Jobs before he died and Tim Cook after Perot died say that Apple never would have been what it became 
without Ross Perot's investment in Next and his sort of like ability to keep Steve Jobs' career afloat. He was essentially his benefactor. Exactly. I just wonder if he looked at this device that is so totally transformative and said, you know, I had, I had a hand in that. Yeah. You know? Or even, I mean, he he lived until 2019. He would have seen the several iterations that came after that. Yeah, I was actually, when I was trying to think about my Malkovich moment, I was trying to think what model of iPhone I should have gone with. And I'm, I think the very first time you see an iPhone, the very first time I saw an iPhone, Pretty goddamn impressive what this thing is. I mean, it's sort of like, wow, that is a lot of power somebody carries around in their pocket. And yeah. I do think it's a it's a generational technology. That Perot had a kind of small piece in it. I wonder if he so claimed Do you that, suspect like a sort of godlike King Midas? Yeah, I think a little bit. I mean, he's got, you know, obviously a long history of working in computer services from IBM to EDS to his journey at GM. And then what it was the last company, Perot Enterprises or something? Yeah, Perot Systems. Perot Systems, I think. But yeah. See, I don't think he needs that kind of validation in terms of because by the time the iPhone comes out, you know, he's in late 70s, 80s, right? He's he's getting up there in age. I guess that's why I want it to be a Malkovich moment. I want to know kind of what's going through his mind. He is looking at just how far technology has come and the fact that he has behind the scenes, steered that a little bit. I'm sure that is one of thousand different moments that Ross Perot could have had looking at the way the world runs that he had a behind-the-stage hands in shaping. But that one in particular leapt out at me. I also just like the Steve Jobs connection. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. All right. Category four, how many marriages, also how many kids, and is there anything public about these relationships? One wife, 63 years, and if my math is correct, married age 26? Yeah, that's what I saw too. It's pretty good. I know I romanticize this a lot when there's a sort of like single marriage that lasts north of 50 years, but... That's great. That's it's a, great. It's and a she's clean still record. with us. As, at the time of this recording, she's still with us. Yeah. 
and five kids. I really looked around for negative press. Did the kids have anything bad to say about mom or dad? I couldn't find anything. I think that the wealth would buffer the kind of negative press, right? Like if they actually had bad things to say about dad, I doubt we would ever really know that. But based on the available information, it seems like everybody had a pretty good opinion of dad. Family life gets a high score for me here. Yeah, it, it seems that way too. And one of the kids became his own sort of business mogul in himself. You're talking about Ross Jr.? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did you see his one of his claim to fames about the helicopter? Yeah, first around-the-world helicopter pilot. Yeah. Yeah, that I didn't know that awful. prior. To, that sounds awful. <laughs> oh, my God. Have you ever been in a helicopter? Yeah, once in Alaska, we went like four miles. I think they're terrifying. Those things go down, man. I'm not afraid of flying, but helicopters around the world? I mm. The view, though. Yeah, no, it, it's cool. It's beautiful. And I'm glad somebody, I'm glad Ross Jr. went around the world in a helicopter, but just the thought of that did not... Excite me. Yeah. All right. Category five, net worth. Assume you found the same number I did, 4.1 billion. Yeah, and I think that's where you got the number 167 from. It is. 167th richest at time of death. Yeah. So I want to talk about this for a second. Yeah. I got this friend who's got this theory that one of the big problems in America is that we cannot distinguish between a million and a billion. This is a good analogy. How long do you think one million seconds is? Uh, a week. Pretty close. 11.6 days. Okay. How about a billion seconds? 400 years. Well, no. 31 years. 40 years. Yes, if I didn't carry the zeros. So 30 years. I'm impressed with the math you did in your head. But isn't that you- kind of an amazing number? I think that that's an incredible illustration. A yeah. million is 11 days. A billion is almost 32 years. There, I think, are a lot of people in the world who cannot tell the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. And you multiply that by four, and for what it's worth, I did the math on that. That would be 138.22 years. I don't know. It's too much. Yeah. You don't need it. You- Whether it's too much or not feels like judgment. Where I struggle with it is it's unimaginable to me. I feel like I could imagine what it's like to have... $10 million. I don't have $10 million today. Maybe I'll get there. I could probably even imagine what it's like to have $50 million. That's a lot of money. That's more money than I need. But, you know, I also am very familiar with the phenomenon of you get acclimatized to whatever state you're in. So if you have $50 million, then you've got buddies who have $30 million and $90 million, right? And you float in those social circles. And that the culture changes with each new tier you reach. billion is unimaginable. I have no idea. It feels like a number that would fuck with your head. But obviously, it can't fuck with your head day in, day out. It's just a number that can distort reality. Is there a threshold at which that reality distortion really sets in for you? Or is there a ballpark number? That I think for myself? Yeah, or even for kind of anybody. I mean, I'm sure— if so I'm, if I'm choosing it, right? one, I'm saying I'm saying a hundred million. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, you can't fault someone for earning what they are capable of earning, and I'm not, especially if they did it through ethical means and created value-added goods or services. Yeah, they work in the system and they play by those rules and they succeed. And and, and so when you said it's too much, it feels like too much to me. But it's it, too it's too much in terms of desirability. Too much to wrap your head around. It's too much like Spider-Man responsibility. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So I don't like it. I, no. I I don't like the idea of having 
that much money. It's not a judgment about anybody that has that much money. I'm just saying in terms of what it seems like to me in terms of quality of life, perception, sanity, privacy. Yeah. It seems like too much. And an ability to engage in meaningful relationships with all kinds of people, not just family members, but new friends or strangers. I mean, somewhere in that between 10 million and you know, 400 million, I believe you begin to cut yourself off from your ability, which is sort of interesting for a guy who ran for president and got pretty goddamn far. I mean, you know, to go back to the five things I love about you, the billionaire archetype, I mean, obviously this is, we value this. People with like extraordinary wealth are without thinking about it, admirable to the general populace, right? They wouldn't be running for president with success if they weren't. But then to actually imagine what it's like to be inside that skin and have that, the minute I go in that direction, I'm, I don't know, I'm less attracted to it. Yeah. When we went to lunch earlier, I had the enchiladas from the lunch menu. I remember. And they were nine forty nine. Yeah. Do you remember what else I was considering having? Yeah, soup and salad, right? Yeah. Do you know how much the soup and salad was? No. Twelve ninety nine. That aided in my decision process, that difference of three dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> yeah. And if I had four point one billion in the bank, I would have difficulty making those decisions. It fucks with your head. Yeah. It's gotta fuck with that, your head. That right? is the whole point. That is the whole point. Well, all right. Category six. Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hollywood Walk of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. Let's take the easy one, the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I don't think he's on there. No. He didn't get it for being played by that guy. It's not what I thought you were going to say was the easy one. The easy one is Dana Carvey. No, I said the easy one to eliminate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, the easy one to notch is Dana Carvey. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very memorable for, for I people I think it's actually, ages. I went back and watched it. It holds up. Like, it is still funny. You people don't quit now, do you? Now. Is this the way we're going to play the game here? Are you guys going to keep asking these asinine questions till you see some dirty pictures? Ross Perot is very, what's the word I'm looking for? Wiry gadfly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ross Perot is a wiry gadfly. No, he's, he's very impersonable. Like, he is a cartoon character, it seems like, right? He was just ripe for impersonation. I asked you earlier if you had any memory of Perot going up. I am confident that I encountered the Dana Carvey impersonation of Ross Perot before I ever heard the actual man speak. It's almost like the Yogi Berra thing, where I knew about Yogi Bear, the cartoon character, before I knew that there was a baseball player. SNL does do that, though. It conflates your memory of, like, what was the actual person's voice or what was their SNL voice? Great impersonations do that, period. It's interesting about SNL that way is that it plays into the narrative of that person, how they're defined. I mean, it is actually a sort of force to be reckoned with. Yeah, because it's not really, impersonations otherwise tend to just be impersonations of past actions. Yeah. But it tends to almost be foreshadowing of your future or even having an effect on your present actions. Should we talk about the 92 presidential election at all? I kind of don't want to. I mean, if you have something to say about it that fits in the category of the Simpsons SNL. Well, yes, I think I do. I think that 50 years from now, If Ross Perot is remembered at all, it will be as a presidential candidate. It won't be for the fact that he was a billionaire. Most billionaires are not household names. It won't be for the fact that he ran these paramilitary adventures to North Vietnam in 69 and then Iran in 79. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. 
So, you know, in the same way that Leonard Nimoy is synonymous with Spock, Ross Perot is kind of synonymous with presidential candidate, right? Like, this is the thing that he is most famous. He's the reason we're talking about this now. As a significant third-party presidential candidate. Right, Right, exactly. And so there's a part of me that, you know, yes, this is the place to talk about the campaign because this is the reason he's famous. And what I found, and I'm sure you found the same thing, is that it is debated what his impact on that election was. That Nate Silver and 538 will say he didn't sway the election because if you look at the exit polls, people who would have voted for Clinton or would have voted for Bush were equally distributed across the parole. You've made our podcast very boring, Michael. Have I? Yeah. I feel like we have to cover this no, shit. No, I'm kidding. Just keep going. You lost nice my attention, but the listeners, they're still listening. No, you actually pulled out your fucking phone. I, I was silencing it because <laughs> I didn't want it to be picked up. The vibrate. dick move. I feel okay, like this no, is please. Important. Is this important? I was trying to get through it real quick. You don't quick, have to ask my permission. You me boring. No, well, no, I just, you, it's, it's not, well, you started by saying one of your concerns was that you didn't want this episode to be politicized at all. I don't. What I was going to say is that He will be debated. His impact on history and on the 92 presidential campaign will be debated for forevermore. I think that those what-ifs in history are really interesting. That's what he's going to be remembered for. That's what he's famous for. How do we feel about that? How do you feel about that? That that's what he's going to be remembered for? That's his legacy. How does that sit with you? I mean, that's he sort of chose that. We're not Vanderbeeking this. I'm not saying at all that that's what I want. But yeah, it's sort of he chose it. Okay, maybe this comes up later in the regrets category. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're going. I think you are into to regrets territory. Okay, well then we'll hold off on it. Just to round out the category, he was never on The Simpsons. Never in any form? Uh, he was impersonated on The Simpsons in a couple of Treehouse of Horror episodes, but he himself never voiced the Ross Perot character on The Simpsons. All right, let's move on. Category seven, over under. Still uh, one of my favorite categories. It is a good category. So uh, in this category, we looked at the life expectancy of the year when the person was born to see if they beat the house odds and how gracefully. Ross Perot was born in 1930. The life expectancy for men in 1930 was 58. He died at 89, 31 years, way over. Crushed it. Crushed it. Well done, Ross. Grand slam. All right, let's pause for a second for a word from our sponsor. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, Michael, we each do our own set of research as we prepare for these shows. Mm -hmm. I notice you always reference a biography and you have like a paperback biography with you as we come to studio. Yeah. So I am to assume that you're getting these from some online Megamart. Is that correct? No, not at all. The first thing I do when you and I decide on our next dead celebrity is I go and find out, is there a biography on this person? And is that biography available at Half Price Books? 
there's a store right up the street from me, an actual brick and mortar store where I can walk in. When I go there to find out, do they have a biography for our next dead celebrity? But I always wind up picking up more books. I go through the children's section. I'm a sucker for a good page turner, so I go through the murder mystery section. They also have rare collections. They have signed stuff. I don't know how this sounds to you, but I actually, I love the smell of half-priced books. It's got that old book smell. I do, I like that too. Isn't that a great smell? Yeah, and you know what? Half Price Books is currently celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are more than 120 stores, and you can find out more about Half Price Books at hpb.com. So the next series of categories, we're going to get a little more speculative, and we're going to get at the inner life. We're going to start with Man in the Mirror. What did Ross Perot think about his own reflection? Ahmed, your thoughts. I mean, you go back to the those obituary words of wiry and gadfly, but also I'd say fiery. Yeah. He's a fiery type of person. He was not tall, right? Five, 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 five or five, five six. six. I saw both numbers. So all of this, you know, I, I I know it's not the right thing to say, but you know, there is sort of a Napoleon complex. Kind of there, you know, all of these tremendous achievements, this tremendous wealth. That was on my mind, too. I mean, how do you not use that term? I know it's pop psychology. but Yeah, it is. But it's also, it's the fieriness, yeah. I think. And he just has this always, like, standing at attention in the military cut, always on guard. Yeah. And just to me, and this is my interpretation, is that's, if you're always on guard, you're not, you're not the opposite of that. You're not relaxed. And that implies to me that there's something that you just don't really like about your physical presence. You're catching the hell out of this. I don't have a hard time saying I agree. I I think I have a hard time believing he liked his reflection. It's just hard for me to see. Well, there's ways that he could, right? He was very clean cut. He was well-dressed. He could have told you to your face a million times that I, I love myself. I like myself. Yeah, and I wouldn't have believed it. So that's our speculation. Yeah, it is, is that we don't. Our our man in the mirror speculation is is I don't think so. I don't think so either. All right, next category, outgoing message. You have reached the voicemail box of How do we think he felt about the sound of his own voice? All right, we're going to talk about this category here because there's been some behind the scene discussions about whether or not we keep this category. I think that his voice is annoying as hell. But did he like it is the question. And I don't know. You know, the quips and his sort of, uh, what was the word they use in the obituary epigrams? Is squippy a word? No, but if it was, it would apply. <laughs> if he doesn't dislike his voice, though, then I don't know what this category is all about. <laughs> Are you implying that, that he definitely does not like his voice? How could you? <laughs> so really annoying voice. So you should be thankful, Dr. Michael Osborne, because we're keeping this category, because I think he did like his own voice. What's your case for it? I think he used it. As an orator, as a speech giver, he loved to give these presentations, and he was known for talking very loquaciously. I'm not talking about the quality of his words or anything, but he liked to talk. No question about that. But when he heard his voice on an answering machine or on an outgoing voicemail, you think he was good with it? I mean, everybody who ever hears their voice the first time says, I sound like that. I hate that. But he surely heard his voice a lot. And over time, you become accustomed to how you sound. And you think he made peace with it faster than the average bear? I don't even know that he had to make peace with it. I, I think, think he, he could have just it. liked it out of the gate. 
I'm making a broad assumption here, but people that that talk a lot, you know, you not only like your words, but you like the way your words come out. And yeah, so my outgoing message here on my chart was yes. He likes his voice. Yeah. I got to say, I'm I'm persuaded because of the orator speech giver thing, right? Yeah. Uh, that that if he's doing that, then yes, he, he must. So you're sticking with he did not like the sound of his own voice. No, I'm changing my answer. You've convinced me. I, I wasn't trying to change your answer. You don't have to. Quit being persuaded, Mighty. <laughs> well, you present a good argument. It's, it, it's a really good point, and I had a hard time. I had a hard time thinking what it would be like to be him and getting out of my own skin because I only know what I hear. I don't know. It's almost an objectively annoying voice. Who was the guy? Do you remember? He was in Ski Patrol. He may have been in like some police academy movies. Bobcat Goldthwait? No, no. You wouldn't even know. I don't think I saw the, the Ski Patrol movies. Okay, then it's not relevant. Anyway, he had a pro-y type of voice. All right, let's go on to the next category. Regrets, public or private? What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. Why don't you go first? I've already sort of waded into this category. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the one that you kind of can't do it without the politics. But whatever the pundits say of if he actually did affect the winner of the 92 election, if he did help Bill Clinton get elected. Yeah, which is impossible to know. But if he ever, like, is thinking, gosh, did I help Bill Clinton get elected? You're just going with that thought train for now? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a possibility because I think if he were a voter, my guess at the polls is he would have been a George H.W. Bush guy. I wonder about that, Ahmed. I think that like all other things being equal, that would have been the best guess. But I actually think he was so sick of both parties that, I mean, obviously he was so sick of both parties that he felt compelled to run, you know, and felt like that was the only way to affect politics. I guess keep going, but I don't see the regret here yet. Okay, that was, I mean, that was a guess, is that maybe he started a chain of events that went from Bill Clinton and the scandals that ensued, and then if the country wasn't divided on Clinton, Gore probably would have been more likely to win, let's say in 2000, and then the cascade of events that followed that and everything. And depending on how long he plays out the story till the end, his participation in that election could have altered the course of history. Yeah. You know, he did in- endorse George W. Bush in 2000. He also endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012. So when you say he leaned Republican, I think that's fair. He stayed quiet in 2016 before his death. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm not merely talking about the fact that he helped elect an opponent. I'm just saying that the course of history severely changed. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do think that like, In the same breath, he he would also be able to say, well, I really raised this issue of the deficit to a level where it is being talked about in political discourse all up and down, that that everyday people are thinking about that. To the extent that there are key issues he really cared about, you know, he can tell himself that I, I affected the debate regardless of who won and lost. I don't see that one as as much of a regret. Okay. For him. Yeah, maybe not. I really don't have a ton more to say about regrets that I believe he had. Well, okay, I got two. I mean, one I started to mention earlier, which is not, you know, did I affect the election or not, but am I going to be remembered for this or not? Yeah. I I could see that haunting him at night, that he has accomplished a lot of other things in his life. He's built successful companies. He helped Steve Jobs bring the iPhone eventually. All kinds of philanthropic activity, funding 
medicine and arts and all kinds of good stuff around Dallas. Like, there's a lot that he has accomplished, and yet, 50 years from now, the historians will be arguing about whether or not he had an effect on the election or not. So I do wonder if he regrets the decision at all. Because I have to imagine that if you got $4.1 billion, you care about your legacy. I think the other regret that we have to talk about is the decision to drop out that hop back in the race in 92. Yeah. He's doing well in July. And then there's this whole like sort of claim of dirty tricks by the Republicans. He drops out of the race. Then he hops back in in October and still gets 20 million votes. That more than should I have run at all must have. So you're saying it's a regret because he would wonder, could he have won? Yeah, if he maybe, didn't do that? maybe. But did I follow the right strategy and getting out and getting back in? It looks like a lack of commitment. Yeah. You know? All right. Next category, good dreams or bad dreams. This is more a question of do they have a certain look in the eye that suggests inner turmoil or inner demons, maybe even unresolved trauma. I said earlier he's got a crazed look in the eye. I don't see a haunted one. I'm going to say good dreams. Good dreams, but crazed look in the eye. I think that he's got a fight to pick. Like, he's got a bone to pick. But I don't see him as haunted. I don't see him as traumatized. I don't see him as, like, a a hurt soul. I think he's sleeping well at night. That's good. You know, I think I'm going to take that as well. Like, good but crazed. And that describes his eyes. Yeah. But maybe I'm also describing his dreams. I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's what what this category is all about. The look in the eye. The look in the eyes. But I think you kind of said it well. I thought of it more binary. Yeah. You know, good dreams, bad dreams. Okay, look in the eye or haunted look in the eye. Yeah. But this butt crazed, I actually, I I like that avenue. Yeah. I think we're agreed. Okay. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. We ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what kind of drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person. Or another philosophy is that it might allow access to a part of them you're most curious about. What did you have here? I'm curious. Cannabis with Ross Perot. Why? Uh, I think it's the access part. Yeah. Yeah. I think there could be something. Or I could just kind of see maybe it just triggers like a really high-pitched giggle. For a long time, and I think that would entertain me. Um, yeah, that, I thought about this. But, this, this but I think fantasy it, of smoking a joint with Ross Perot. Yeah, actually. but I I think it's the access the access to his motivation, his perception of not America and the world, but the universe. Yeah, from somebody that's traveled from like the economic journey that he has done and the extremely private to extremely public journey. I'm just I'm just curious about how he sees the universe. You know what's funny about this category? You and I often want the same things. We just are choosing different drugs to get at them. I want coffee with Ross Perot because I think this guy is brilliant. I think that there is a tremendous intelligence there. And whenever anybody has that kind of smarts, I just want to hear them go. I want to engage in like a caffeinated conversation where we are just talking about how he sees the world, not just like his political view on government, but just how the world is organized. You know, he's got a crazy unique perch. And I think he had that for a lot of his life. And I would have wanted to learn from Ross Perot. Yeah. I wanted to add actually one other thing too. I think it may be the single most interesting thing about him is intellect. I mean, I really would have liked to have gotten to know him on a real cerebral level. Yeah, no doubt. He's a very smart guy, and it does not, he doesn't look it, you know? Yeah. And that's that's something that, that maybe belonged into the five things, is clearly very smart, but doesn't look smart. What was his relationship with alcohol? Do you know? I didn't see much about it. I didn't see much about it there, but he could have been a raging alcoholic and we never would have known, you know? Hard to imagine 
You hard know? to imagine, also hard to not be as an international businessman. But it's also like he was also a person of pretty steadfast values. And I don't know if alcohol crossed into that. And I actually do think it's hard to know. Again, with the family that's in the stratosphere in terms of this kind of wealth and culture, it's hard to know. But I kind of sense a family man here. I don't think that that's a front. You know, I think you do see that in other politicians, and I think he's not exactly a politician. He becomes one after 92 when you decide to run for office. You are. But he never held political office. Yeah. And I think another perception of him is authenticity, to his credit. So maybe a drinker, but unlikely a raging drinker. Yeah, I, I didn't say anything about it. Yeah. All right, we're here. The Vanderbeek. Named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Based on everything we've talked about, the big question is, do you want this life? As always, you and I have not arrived at a conclusion ahead of time, but I, I was, it was very hard not to think about this. It's always hard. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing I've been trying to do before this conversation and leading up to it, is asking myself if I took away some of the key things here, some of the big categories. For example, if I took away the 92 presidential campaign, would I want this life? Or if I took away that $4.1 billion, would I want this life? Would that affect my answer? Because the idea of running for president sounds awful to me. The idea of being president sounds awful to me. And throwing yourself as a sort of well-to-do, wealthy folk hero where young Amit may have heard of you, but most of America has not prior to 92, to throw yourself into the limelight like that sounds awful. I think it's worse than any other form of celebrity in a way because of the way it gets scrutinized and where there's this public battle for your story and what it means. And your ability to write your own story is forever lost as soon as you run for office. And you can try to manage it. And you might get lucky. You might hear a version of that story you like, but it's kind of out of your control. I want a life where I'm choosing my own destiny and where I get to shape the narrative of who I am. And I, I fame risks that and political fame really risks that. So that that's almost a deal breaker for me right there. And then I don't, I don't feel like I could handle $4.1 billion. I don't know if I could handle $100 million. It's a lot of days. Yeah, it's, it is a lot of days. It's a lot of weeks. Okay, so, so... So I'm a pretty lean, heavy no on those things. Now, hypothetically, if you asked me, would you want this life absent the money and absent the presidential campaign, there's some things here that are really great. There is a... Rags to Rich's story, there's a long-term marriage, there's five children, there's a lot of philanthropic activity, you're engaged in some really incredible adventures. Ken Follett writes a book about something you did once to save two people from revolutionary Iran. Like, there's some really great stuff here. Yeah, but James Vanderbeek did not have a choice of removing parts of the life. You have to make a decision. Yeah, okay. If you're asking me to make a decision, I think my answer is no. Your answer is no. So taking taking all of that. If I have to take all of it, yeah, I don't, I don't want this life, man. This, yeah. isn't, this isn't for me. You have to take it all. What about you? You made me think a lot there about, about the public life that's involved in a campaign and the presidency and the aftermath of whether you won or not. Yeah, I don't, I don't like that. And I see what you say about, you know, in as generations past, that's all you're known for. Yeah. But that doesn't affect your life exactly. I mean, your legacy is not you know, the experience of having been alive. This question, the Vanderbeek, do you want this life, is not about how are you remembered. I mean, it can be, I guess, but 
I don't feel like that's the... It's how you think you'll be remembered. Yeah. It is part of that. Yeah, that's true. But I, you know, one of the things I said in the five things I love about you was the challenging of the Parkinson's law. You know, the challenging of boundaries. This idea that you have a year to meet a quota and you do it in three weeks. This idea that, you know, you have two years to complete a project and you do it in two months. Or even this idea that there's only two political parties in America. Perhaps. This idea that you are born in depression, Texarkana, and deliver papers on a pony predestines you for something. I'm not saying anybody had that idea. But it was it was a life of testing extreme boundaries. And it was almost like, a, if you can imagine it, you can do it. Yeah, Especially with the Vietnam and the Iran stories or fables, or whatever you want to call them. But then running for president, take, having the audacity to do that, and I'm not, I'm not at all, but not judging it. Yeah. I'm not judging it. I'm not judging. It. I'm just saying having that that audacity and that ability to make choices and challenge conventions. It seems to me it's significant. There's a significance there, and that's attractive to me. I struggle with will my time be significant in my own right, and so I like it. I like that that his was significant. Yeah. It may, as you said, it may not have been private enough, but that wins it for me. So I'm saying yes to the Vanderbeek. Wow. It's a strong case. I don't think it changes my answer. I will say that from 1930 to 91, you can't. I know, I know, I know. He I know. made James I, I, I made know, a decision I, 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 at that table, <laughs> which is what we modeled that category. What he says, I don't want your life. Yeah. yeah, there was not, there was not a dialogue. I, I, know, I know where I know. the dad goes back and says, "Well, what if I you I took would, about?" I, I wouldn't change my answer. I wouldn't okay. change my answer. I'm, but, but I am trying to dissect it a level deeper so that I can do what I think we're here to do on this show, which is extract out what I care about. Correct. And your point that I want to live a significant life is absolutely true. I do not want to be part of the mass of quiet desperation. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an art to the Vanderbeek in that you have to have a yes or a no. Because the point is that there's not an algorithm. There's not like, if you have money, if you have a certain consistency of love or some measure of fame, that it's like, yes, no, yes, no, and then you have an algorithm, I want this life. Mm-hmm. Our whole point is that you can have yes or no, and you can have numbers all over the place, and you can have achievements all over the place, but then there's this strong element of magic, and that magic could be 10%, 50%, or 70%, and we don't really know, but the fact that we have to arrive at a yes or no answer just reveals that there is magic in there somewhere that is somehow weighing our decisions. It's very well said. All right, we've arrived. Michael. We're at the pearly gates. You are Ross Perot. H. Ross Perot. You are H. Ross Perot. Present yourself to quote unquote St. Peter. Peter, you know, I had a really long run and I had a very eventful life. I think people are going to remember me most for the presidential election in 1992 and maybe to a lesser extent 1996. It was, as some would describe, an audacious move to hop into the presidential election. And in some ways, I do feel like my whole life led up to it. I was granted a lot of good fortune. I think I earned it. I think we make our own luck. And Lord knows I worked my tail off. I created a successful company. And as I grew that company, I I think I lifted a lot of people up. I gave people opportunity. Yes, I had strict rules around that. But along the way, I saw something at risk that I cared about, which was the future of America. I wanted the good fortune that was offered to me 
and that I earned and that I worked for. I wanted that for everybody. And I saw a system that was breaking and falling apart. So I felt compelled to hop into that election. I don't know if that's the thing I'm going to be judged for here at the pearly gates. I hope it's not. I hope I can be evaluated based on the totality of my contributions to humanity because if it's not obvious, I cared. I cared about everybody who ever worked for me. I cared about my family. And I cared about the country that gave me so much. Maybe it didn't always look like acts of service, but ultimately I see my life as an act of service and I did my best to share that the best way I knew how. So for that, let me in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review. You can sign up for our mailing list at famousandgravy.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Famous and Gravy. Our show was co-created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Morgan Honecker, graphic design by Brandon Burke, and original music by Kevin Strang. Thank you again for listening, and hope to see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.